This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Hi, this is Jamar Tisby, president of The Witness, a black Christian collective and co-host of the podcast, Pass the Mic. One of the reasons we were so excited to come to Memphis for the MLK 50 events hosted by the National Civil Rights Museum was the prospect of interviewing current activists. And so our guest on this podcast needs almost no introduction. Most of us were introduced to Bree Newsom during that iconic moment when she climbed a flagpole in South Carolina in front of the State House and literally ripped down the Confederate flag in the wake of the Emanuel Nine events. And so we get to talk to Bree Newsom, who graciously uh, lent us her time. She talks about how her faith motivates her activism. She talks about the civil rights movement then and now and makes some helpful comparisons. She also gives us some insight into how she does grassroots organizing and activism. So we just loved having this conversation with Bree Newsom, and we're sure you're going to enjoy it as well. As we stand here on the 50th anniversary of MLK's assassination, literally in, in Memphis, blocks away from the Lorraine Motel where he was killed, it's interesting that this occasion is as much about the present as it is about the past. And so I'm wondering, as an activist, how has Dr. King's life and legacy impacted the work you do now? Absolutely. I think that part of, or really why, <laughs> this moment is as much about the present as it is about the past is because um, it's really a marker for judging how much progress or lack thereof, right, we have made um, in the past 50 years. So, you know, back in January, we were celebrating Martin Luther King Day, obviously. That's something that we mark every year. Every January, you know, we mark the birthday of Martin Luther King Jr. It's not every year that we pause to really reflect upon the, you know, the time in which he was assassinated. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that is so important because so many of the things that he was speaking to in the latter part of his life, we are dealing with today. You know, um, I think it's very important that we recognize that his mission was not completed. You know, sometimes I think we have this distorted perception of the civil rights movement as having achieved all of its aims. But the end goal of the civil rights movement was not simply integrating schools or mm -hmm. integrating public transportation. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. very much saw himself as beginning the second part mm. of the civil rights movement, which was really about a deeper transformation of our values. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so a lot of the focus has been on economic justice. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, can you comment on, um, what's being done either in, in your life or what you see happening in terms of incorporating economic justice into civil rights conversation? Yes. Well, I, I don't think that there's really any way to separate mm -hmm. the issue of economic justice from racial justice. Those things cannot be separated. Um, the, the whole reason that racism was really developed in America was to justify the institution of slavery. And slavery, of course, was an economy. So it was always fundamentally about preserving a certain economic order, a certain social order, right, that, that served an economic 
purpose. And that's, I mean, that's part of why Martin Luther King Jr. came to Memphis. You know, he was protesting with sanitation workers Mm -hmm. who were on strike Mm -hmm. um, in the wake of two uh, sanitation workers being crushed to death in the back of a a garbage truck. And, you know, just working under horrible conditions, really having no kind of working, you know, protections. Um, And it's important to recognize that is a direct legacy of slavery. So, you know, even today as civil rights activists, we can't really separate the either or. Like, yes, when we're talking about it, right, it makes sense to talk about economic justice, talk about racial justice, talk about the ways that they overlap and interact. But they're really not separate issues um, at the end of the day. And I think part of what Martin Luther King Jr. was really trying to get everybody to understand was that it has to be about um, universal human rights. We have to get to a point where we value people more than Mm. property, right? So the conditions that allow two sanitation workers to be crushed to death in the back of a truck and their family's only given $500, um, that's because we're operating in a society that values property more than people. All right. So through this podcast and our website, we try to encourage Christians to activism. And so we're always on the lookout for prominent activists who and we're wondering, are they religious? Are they mm-hmm. Christian? You know, and, and I love your Twitter bio. Um, it says artist, free black woman, and we are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, like, what's your theology of public justice? Or just to put it more simply, how does your faith inform your activism? Absolutely. My faith most definitely informs my activism because I I do truly believe that we are all children of God. I I believe in love as Jesus preached it. Um, I believe that love in action looks like justice, Mm. right? And, um, you know, when, when Jesus talks about what you did for the least of these, you did to, you know, you did for me, you Mm -hmm. did also for me. And so in, in my view, in my belief, and I believe this is what the gospel is really telling us is that to love God, we are to love God with all of our heart. But to love God is to also love your neighbor as yourself. That's what it means to love God, right? Um, and so I can't then be content in simply going to work, going home, going to church, mm. going back home. You know, I might Living be content. Right. Dream. I might be content and okay in my life, but I can't, you know, ignore everything that exists around me. And then, I mean, even more so the reality, too, as a black person in America, money and, you know, career and education, those things don't shield me mm-hmm. from racism. You know, you can't socially elevate out of racism. And, and again, kind of back to like the overlaps of, you know, um, class and economics and, and race and how they how they're intertwined. You know what I mean? It's, it's not simply a matter of, um, you know, of, of reaching a certain elevated stat, you know, status mm-hmm. in class that, that, OK, so now I've now I'm making, you know, one hundred thousand dollars a year. OK, I no longer have to deal with racism. That's not how it works. You know, um, so I, I it, to a certain extent, I can't opt out of it. Right. right. But even if I could. I would feel that it was my duty as a Christian, as a believer in Jesus, to continue the work mm. of the apostles, of, of so many Christians before us. So, I mean, Christians in the American church, we read the same Bible, we quote the same verses, but there's very different approaches. And some would even say that, you know, the kind of activism that you're involved in, you know, sort of direct and, you know, grassroots and all these things is a departure from what you should really be focusing on in the gospel. So I'm just interested in, do you think there's some sort of disconnect or, or misunderstanding in the American church, and maybe it divides along racial or class lines, where there aren't more Christians sort of engaged in these kinds of overt and risky uh, kinds of activism even? So I think there's two things. I think, one, we have to acknowledge the way that Christianity 
um, particularly like European Christianity and the Bible have been used as tools of oppression, deliberately used as tools of oppression, um, scripture being manipulated, in some cases taken out of the Bible. I've seen um, they have copies of uh, a Bible that was owned by a slave master where they actually took the book of Exodus out of the book. So anything that would challenge, you know, the institution of slavery, they would take out and then they would try to twist the scripture around right. to justify slavery. So one, I think we have to acknowledge that as a thing, right? Mm-hmm. And that that is part of, of what we are dealing with when people say, well, that, that, you know, you're talking about liberation. I don't know how that, you know, and, and all these things that doesn't necessarily jive with what I understand Christianity to be. Like, yes, okay, I understand that. But we also have to talk about, right, um, Christianity as a tool of oppression. Now, also, Christianity during that whole history has also been very intertwined with the abolitionist movement. And I think that's important for people to recognize too. What I'm doing and saying today is nothing new. I am speaking and acting in a tradition that is hundreds of years old of people who said that no, slavery is completely antithetical to Christ and to the scriptures and to everything, you know, that, uh, um, that is in the Bible and, and that we know. And so that is, that is also a very long, um, tradition as well. Yeah. One of the things that we are constantly having conversations about is like the usefulness of the term racial reconciliation. Pluses, minuses, what is your take on that term? I think the the issue reconciliation is not the problem. Right. I think it's the it's the unwillingness or the reluctance to also include justice. That's the issue. And I think King spoke very much to that. He, he wasn't, he was calling for peace, but peace requires justice. There's no such thing as peace in the absence of justice. Like that kind of peace is just order. You know what I mean? Like when, when things are unjust and you maintain the quote unquote peace right. with violence, that's not really peace, right? right? So like people start protesting, like what we saw in the 60s with the nonviolent civil disobedience movement. People start protesting, they're using nonviolent civil disobedience and the state responds with hoses and mm-hmm. dogs and, you know, uh, water cannons and all, and all these kinds of things. That's not peace. That's just right. order. Right. So if we are really trying to, in a very real way, achieve peace, achieve reconciliation, then justice has to be a part of that conversation. I was just recently because we had an uprising in Charlotte, you know, in 2016. Mm -hmm. And so we're still in the aftermath of that and still dealing with that. And um, one of the things that we were looking at, it was like possibly doing some kind of like truth and reconciliation process, kind of similar to what was done in South Africa. And one of the things that we noticed is that, one, we really need to include the term justice in there. Like, we have to be insistent about that. And two, South Africa, for what things it uh, did accomplish, they're still dealing with a lot of issues there because that justice piece wasn't necessarily addressed, right? It's like, it's like okay, yes, we've laid the truth bare. We have acknowledged everything that has happened. But what are we really doing to remedy it? You know what I'm saying? Yes. And so that, that's kind of where we are now. It's like, yes, slavery ended. Yes, Jim Crow, at least 1.0, exactly. <laughs> ended, right? But what have we really done to address those issues? I mean, here in Memphis, it's still very much the same situation. I mean, very similar to the conditions uh, when King yes. came here in 1968. So it's like, you know, we can do all these commemorative events, but at some point, it, you know, nothing is really going to change That's in right. a fundamental way until we dig deeper into justice. Most of us got introduced to you through this iconic moment when you climb the flagpole and literally tear down the symbol of white supremacy in the Confederate flag. So I go to school in Mississippi um, and our state flag literally has the Confederate emblem embedded 
in it. And so it's not just one flag, it's literally thousands. And so what input or advice would you have for residents of Mississippi to take down that flag? So I think there's, I think there's two things um, at work. One, it's important to recognize there has really been a significant amount of deliberate miseducation hmm. that has happened in this country around slavery, um, around symbology like the Confederate flag, some of these Confederate monuments. Um, and so part of what we are confronting when we're trying to get rid of these con- this Confederate symbology is really like an educational process. It's got to be a public education process. And I, and I really emphasize that, too. Like, I don't want a situation where we simply take a flag down, take a monument down, and then we don't talk about it anymore. Mm-hmm. Like that's, you know, yeah. I, I, I don't want us to just take the flag down in South Carolina and not talk about how it was raised in 1961 right. as a statement of anti-civil rights, how it flew there for 54 years, how, you know, in the wake of uh, a mass shooting at Mother Emanuel, this, you know, racist killing and Mother Emanuel, the mm-hmm. Confederate flag was allowed to fly for several days above the American and state flags. And so, again, you know, we can take it down. We can say, OK, now we've reconciled the issue. But but where are we digging deeper into the issue of right. justice? Right. right. And, and and to my whole thing with um, with symbols, symbols are very, very important. Symbols yes. are very important because they um, reemphasize to us like our values and beliefs. But at the same time, symbols themselves don't make reality what it is. Right. And so it's like we could I, I'm glad to see all of these monuments and flags coming down in certain areas. My only concern is that people are going to do that and then pat themselves on the back and say, we've done all that we you know that we need to do and let's move forward. Sure. In South Carolina, this you know, those issues are not addressed. We're three years. We're going to be coming up on the um, third year anniversary this June. And I mean, it's still very raw because sure. the issues are very raw. And, and taking down the flag is just step one. So what I, what I love about your work is that you're really on the front lines. Um, community grassroots organizing. Uh, what are some strategies? I know that's a big question mm-hmm. but for somebody who's listening and wants to be part of the solution how do they get started yeah so i i personally like doing community grassroots work because i like direct impact like i like you know working directly uh-huh. with people like really kind of seeing the, the the direct impact of things a lot of it is really um building interpersonal connection building community and and i say that because it's really hard to move forward uh as a community advancing an agenda, if we don't have a deeper level of connection with mm-hmm. each other, so you can organize against something. Mm-hmm. We can mobilize and organize against something. That's only going to take us so far that like, like anger and outrage is like a very, um, it's like a very powerful short burning fuel, yes. <laughs> you know? Yes. Um, but to really go the distance, we have to be organized around what we are for. Mm. That's part of what was so powerful about the 60s civil rights movement and why it accomplished as much as it did was because they spent as much time training and <laughs> making sure everybody understood right. what, what they were doing, right. right? So like before you could come out and participate in a sit-in protest or anything like that, you had to go through weeks of training mm. to understand nonviolent civil disobedience, to understand... Not even nonviolence just as a tactic, but as a whole philosophy for like, you know, a, a future world that you are aiming for. So you're coming to participate in this protest today, but you're understanding how this fits into a larger, you know, effort of humanity toward a nonviolent right, uh, society. Right, right. You know what I mean? Um, and so it's it's kind of a, a similar thing today, whatever the issue is that we're that we are organizing around um, at the end of the day is going to come down to those human relationships. Mm. Do you think we're in the midst of, a, of a, another wave of the civil rights movement? Um, 
of similar sort of scope and importance as in the 50s and 60s? I would say yes. I think I think we definitely are. And there are a lot of historical parallels between what's happening today and what happened in the 60s. So if you examine kind of like what are the conditions that led to the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s? You had all of these GIs, black GIs mm-hmm. coming back from Europe, World War II veterans. They had fought overseas. You know, they were heroes. They come back and they're expecting equality. You know, yeah. I'm a veteran. Like, And so they started demanding a higher level of equality. Medgar Evers was a veteran. A lot of the like older folks of the civil rights movement, many of them were veterans. Um, then you had the Emmett Till case, you know, the lynching. Um, and then you had Brown v. Board of Education, which was a landmark you know, decision. It was a win. It was a win in the courts, but only in the courts. And so then it required this protest to move it forward. I think you see kind of similar thing happening today. We had the election of the first black president. And in many ways, you know, many people saw that as like, okay, no, maybe we're not post-racial America, but it was still seen as a sign of hope, right? It was still, and I think for I think I can certainly speak for my generation. I think it gave us a sense of greater entitlement to equality. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and just like believing like we should absolutely have equality. And so then when you had, um, you know, the killing of Trayvon Martin, you had the U.S. Supreme Court striking down key parts of the Voting Rights Act. Yeah. Right. Those are the conditions that kind of led to this modern civil rights movement that we're in right now. How do you think this civil rights movement of the current day differs from the 50s and 60s? In some ways, honestly, I feel like we're fighting a sleeker model, Mm -hmm. you know? So whereas in the past it was, you know, you see a colored water fountain, you see a white water fountain, you see colored only, you see, you know, white only. It's very in your face. You can't deny segregation. It's written there in the law. You know, um, you, you know, you stage a nonviolent protest and you're met with this, you know, overt violence very much in your face. Today, it's a little bit more nuanced. You know, I mean, you don't have to, you don't have to put up signs. You don't have to legally force people to segregate, but we have de facto segregation. Um, in Charlotte, you know, where, where I live, at one point, CMS schools were really kind of renowned nationwide for busing and, you know, the efforts that they were making towards achieving equality in the schools. But now we are a segregated our schools are as segregated racially and economically as they were in the 60s. A child born in poverty in Charlotte statistically gets poorer over the course of wow. his or her lifetime if they live in Charlotte, North Carolina. But again, it's not as in your face, right? And if we go out and we say just sit in today, there's a very slim chance that we're going to be met with the kind of police violence that you know, folks met with because, because in the 60s, see, they had, the police hadn't seen that before. Uh-huh. So they had no tactical strategy to respond to it. They just, you know, they just right. responded with what they had. And yeah. they're like, oh, wait, we're making ourselves look worse. That's like we're right. making, you know, we're, we're helping them by, by doing this violence. So they're careful not to be violent in that way. Um, and so a lot, a lot of parallels, I think more similar than, uh, than different. Now, I think one of, um, one of the perceptions is of the current civil rights movement and activists is that they're not as religious or it's not as faith-based as do you think that's accurate or would you nuance that i think that is true to a certain extent i i I think i think also though i think that we um kind of reimagine or or almost have like a a, a, an inaccurate historical memory of the civil rights movement because the reality is it was really only a handful of churches that were really active in the civil rights movement and um you know some of that had to do with people not necessarily supporting it um some of it had to do with people just afraid because i mean churches were they became targets of violence Mm -hmm. when they participated um in the civil rights movement especially like in a place like birmingham alabama it increased the likelihood that your church might be bombed or targeted or 
or something like that. Um, and so I, I think that sometimes we overemphasize the role that church has played in the past, uh, you know. Um, but I do also think that today the culture is just a little different. First of all, the church, like it or not, is not the anchor in the black community that it once was as many, in, you know, in, in many ways. Because at one point, I mean, the, the church was the only place we could meet. That's right. Church was like the, <laughs> the only place for a lot of things. Uh-huh. And it's not like that anymore. And so that that has changed the dynamic somewhat. But we still have churches that are, you know, very much active. And too, I have to say, oftentimes when we do need meeting spaces, it's most it's often the, the churches. Church. It's still the yeah. churches. Uh-huh. Yeah, it is. That's right. That's right. And what I find just so fascinating is that it may not be, um, you know, religious in terms of institution, like it's just from a church or whatever, but a lot of individuals still are people of faith. And, yes. and that's uh, been an important factor in their activism. So, you know, that's just an interesting, I think, uh, way to look at the current movement today. Now, I think for a lot of people, you're frozen in time on that <laughs> flagpole, ripping down the Confederate flag. But there's a lot more to Bree Newsom than that. What else do you want people to know about who you are and what you do? Um, well, one thing I would want people to know about the flag action is a lot of people think I just hopped up that day. Uh-huh. <laughs> you Come know, on, and, tell yeah, I just hopped up that day and went down there. And the reason I want people to know that that's not the case is because I want folks to understand the type of um, planning and deliberate action that goes into something like that, you know, a nonviolent civil disobedience protest um, in that way. We thought through everything. There were like nine other folks who were working with me mm. on that action, and we thought through every single aspect of it. So I know that like a lot of people, you know, know me because of that action, or that's when they first came to know me. But I had been active um, in the yes. modern movement for years before uh, before taking down the flag, and I continue to be, yes, you know. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. But you're also an artist. Yes, so I am. Tell us about your art. Yes, I am an artist. I'm a filmmaker. I'm a writer. I'm a musician. Um, Mm. In fact, I had uh, returned to North Carolina in 2013 after serving as artist in residence at Saatchi and Saatchi Ad Agency. And yeah, and it was, you know, I was really up until that point, I wasn't trying to be an activist. I never said to myself, I'm going to be an activist. I always cared about social issues. Um, Social issues often figured in the work that I would make. Um, but I just, yeah, and I never would have thought about putting myself in a position to be arrested. You see, I, I really grew up seeing, like, the civil rights movement as, like, you know, this thing of the past. And then right. we had overcome. Yes, we still had a way to go, but we had overcome a lot, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so when I got to 2013, I saw everything that was going on. I really kind of, in my mind, put all of that on the back burner, like all of my personal ambition and everything like right. that. I have come to recognize, even more so now, though, the power of things like the pen, the power of words, mm-hmm. the power of art in organizing and mobilizing. And so now I'm trying to be much more intentional in how I can maybe use things like public art to educate, mm-hmm. right? Because even the act of taking down the flag was in some ways like a performance art. You yeah. know, it was kind of like a, a moment of performance art and public art and education. Yeah. And so I'm trying to figure out, like, how can we have more moments like that? Like, how can I, uh, maybe not particularly like, you know, in a, in a protest necessarily, mm-hmm. but how can we use public art and public space to educate people more around these issues, to um, open people's minds to, uh, you know, some of these deeper ideas around what it means to be, uh, to have human rights. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I heard someone say recently that if it wasn't for black art, the world wouldn't have a sense of black culture or black experience. And it's the window into sort of our reality. So I love, you know, the idea of art as activism mm-hmm. and 
um, as creating culture that helps educate people. And resilience, too. Yeah. I think that I think that's something else, um, particularly in the black experience, our art and music and things like that have, have often been um, a source of resilience and healing for us. Yeah. You know, when we were shut out of kind of every other way of expressing ourselves, yeah. that kind Absolutely. of, you know, drums are taken away. Every aspect of your cultural representation or expression is taken away. And then we find these new ways to still yeah. speak our experience. Is there anything that frustrates you about the current movement, just as you see nationally? Oh, gosh. Yes. I feel... So my frustration with the current movement is I don't think that we study enough. Mm. I don't think we study enough. As a, as a PhD student, I love to hear that. <laughs> That's great. I, I, I think that... And I'm saying this to myself, too. I mean, you know, I jumped... I just jumped in feet first to the movement. Like, I'm sure many people do. Like, uh-huh. you get outraged about something and, you you know, you kind of jump in and want to change it. Um, and, and I just... Every time I commit myself to studying movement history, studying the events that came before me, it makes me such a better organizer. I just, um, I just recently met Diane Nash and she was explaining to me how like, you know, what you see, you know, these pro, you know, these reels of like the protests and everything. She's like, that's like 10, 15, 20% of what we were doing. She's Uh like, most of the time we were training. And see, we're in the social media age, you know, we're (laughs) in this age, right? All you got to do, I can, I can tweet something out have a 200 people show up for a rally and that's cool, but that's not going to be the same level of organization as had we taken them through like three weeks of training and political education and tech, you know what I mean? And so, uh, yeah. So I would just say like studying more, we just gotta, we gotta commit ourselves to being eternal students. That's good. How can we support your work? Uh, well, you can um, follow me on Twitter <laughs> at Bree Newsom. Yes. Um, I also have a website, BreeNewsom.com. Um, people are often, you know, trying to ask like how they can support <laughs> um, and, and things like that. And I say, you know, like certainly follow me, um, reach out because the work that I do is so local and, and in a community way. I have like this work that I do at a very community level. And then I have kind of like this national yep. um, traveling and speaking, you know, and, and talking about the issues. Um, and so, you know, reach out. Sometimes people ask me to just come and speak in the community. I'm always willing uh, to do that because so many of the things that we are dealing with in Charlotte, people are dealing with all over the That's country. That's so true. That's so true. Thank you so much. Absolutely. This has been a privilege and an honor. Thank you. All right. We hope you enjoyed this episode with our guest, Bree Newsom. Find out more about the work we do at The Witness by visiting our website, thewitnessbcc.com. That's thewitnessbcc.com. You can follow us on social media. Follow this podcast at underscore pass the mic, as well as our website at thewitnessbcc. And we'll see you soon on the next Pass the Mic. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.